So we're reading out of Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 4. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. to me some gum. He always goes to grocery store for milk, so I like him. And he always let me buy Harvey's car, so I like him. Because he's funny, he makes dad jokes, and I, think, I just think that he's a really good dad in general. That he was in the Navy and the military? Honestly, a lot of things, because I just don't really know what to pick. It's just a lot of things I like. Um, that he tells a lot of jokes because uh, I like it when he, on the heat he's funny. Um, I love to share my food with him and, and hug him. I like that he can do stuff with me and he can catch stuff with me that I want to do with him. I love that. Me and my dad usually go golfing all the time, and that's my favorite thing. And we always go to see the horse tracks on Saturdays or Sundays, whenever it is time. And we go to the stockyards, and those are all my favorite things about this picture. That he makes our dinner, and he and he does everything for us. Um, because because he makes me laugh when we play with him. Well, he's actually, he's really funny, so it's really funny. He, he like, um, when he um, sprayed the uh, hose at me, I was laughing. That he um, always, like he always um, helps us do things that, and he tells us what to do so we won't get in trouble. Can you laugh me? Oh, I like Dad building Hot Wheels cars and train tracks around my house. Well, good morning. Oh. Um. Happy Father's Day to you guys. Um, hopefully, I'll uh, resist the urge to kind of fill this with a bunch of dad jokes this morning. But uh, I did want to start off with something that I think that we can all relate to. Uh, it's what I like to call the thermostat war. Okay, it often occurs between family members, right? And so let's just say we have these two individuals, right? We'll even say that they're husband and wife, they're married. Um, and the husband, let's just give him a name. I don't know, something off the top of my head. We'll say his name's Matthew, right? It's a good, strong, biblical name, right? Okay, and um, you know, Matthew, like many adults, okay, is always looking to kind of save on the electric bill, right? Okay, so during the winter months, he likes to keep the house at a nice, cool 68 degrees. Um, but his wife, um, I don't know, let's just pick another name for her. We'll call her Catherine, okay? Um, she is perpetually cold, Right? And so during 
the winter, she thinks that the house should be a, a balmy, tropical 75 degrees, right? So Matthew sees the tool, um, the thermostat as a tool for responsible economical living, right? Um, he sees it as a choice to be prudent, right? To, you know, put on an extra sweater during the wintertime or, or just wear your swimsuit in the house during the summertime, right? Catherine, on the other hand, um, she sees the thermostat as like this means for like personal comfort and freedom, right? It's like this quest to enjoy the most perfect living conditions, right? So these two totally random people that I just made up off the top of my head for this story, they have views of the same, the same thermostat, okay, that are entirely different. They're, they're living in the same house. They are um, dealing with the same device, and yet their perceptions and their priorities are totally different, right? Now, this is a little bit, little bit like the kingdom of God versus the kingdom of this world, okay? The world looks at life one way. Um, it has its own kind of temperature setting, if you will, for success or for value or for purpose. But when we encounter the kingdom of God, we realize that his temperature, temperature setting is different, right? It's not less comfortable or it's less enjoyable, okay? It's just different, right? There are priorities and values and ideas of su- success that are his that are not like the world's, okay? They're just very different, okay? The way that we see his teachings, right? He teaches us how to approach money or sexuality or power or relationships or opposition or adversaries or how we make decisions, right? It gives us a perspective that's just utterly different than anything that's common or expected in this world. So as we look at the Beatitudes, I think it becomes more and more clear that God's kingdom is strikingly different than the world's, okay? A common phrase that you may have heard in dealing with Beatitudes is that it's God's upside-down kingdom, Okay, in fact, th- these are the very things that Jesus highlights as pathways to God's blessings um, and favor that are often just dismissed or outright um, just ignored by the world as though um, the world has just said, no thanks, I'm just going to do me, right? Now, if we were just to read these things and we had no context, I might understand why the world might look at that and be kind of unimpressed. I mean, think about how upside down this sounds. Blessed are those who mourn or happy are those who are sad, right? Um, the world is kind of forever seeking a way to kind of relieve its, its grief, and yet Jesus is teaching us that there's a specific type of mourning that actually invites a life of blessing. Now, everyone experiences sorrow, okay, but, for every, uh, but not everyone finds um, blessing in their grief, and, and Jesus is referring to a, a unique form of mourning, okay? It's a particular type of sorrow, And today I want to break down three aspects of that and then look at the blessings of comfort that's described in the scriptures. So the first thing about mourning is this, mourning over our personal sin and brokenness, mourning over our personal sin and brokenness. Okay, these are the individuals that we really looked at last week about the, or not last week, but two weeks ago, about being poor in spirit. Okay, they embody that. They recognize their spiritual bankruptcy, their lack of spiritual merits. They acknowledge their sinful nature and their inherent brokenness. They have no confidence in their religious stature or their moral achievements. They're profoundly aware of the dysfunction that's within them, right? But they also mourn it. Okay, they experience the sting of sin and sorrow that that, that induces, they recognize that their transgressions aren't just breaking laws, okay? They're breaking a relationship. They're an affront to love itself. And they mourn their sin and the way that it impacts God's heart. 
Okay, we see instances of mourning throughout the scriptures of this. I mean, we looked at one when we looked at the, the first beatitude of, of the sinful woman who was mourning at Jesus' feet, crying her tears to, to wash his feet, right? And then we also have guys like Peter, okay? Peter, after living with Jesus for years and years and, and seeing and hearing all the things that Jesus did, upon Jesus' arrest, he denies him three times, and then at the rooster's crow, the Bible says that he wept bitterly. Okay, this is the type of mourning that comes from individuals who are deeply impacted by their inward sins and they feel that inherent brokenness within them, okay? They know something's fundamentally wrong. It's like Paul's lamentation. The good that I want to do, I don't do. And the things that I don't want to do, I find myself doing, right? We've all been there. It's an internal struggle, this cry for, for deliverance from our own sinful nature. That's the essence of mourning. Those who mourn in this way don't trivialize sin, right? They don't make an excuse for sin or, or shift the blame towards something else. They refuse to compromise or make peace with sin. They don't, they don't dismiss the behavior of this is just you know, who I am or this is just kind of what we did in my family. They grieve over their sin. They feel the pain that's inflicted on themselves or on others. Um, and, and look at what uh, James says to the church in James chapter four. He says this, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. So not exactly the most kind of cheery Christian message, right? James is being candid. He's imploring the church to confront and to deal with their sin, to mourn and to weep it, even at the cost of their laughter and their joy. Those who mourn have the courage to face that truth about themselves, and they bravely look it in the eye, they confront their faults and their failings, and they grieve them. You know, I remember when we were going over this verse, because remember this is, I, um, at the title site, it says The Blessing of Humility. That's the name of the book that we, we did in our small group. And there was a question that was asked during this lesson, and it was, have you ever shed tears over your sin? Have you ever shed tears over your sin? And I, and I don't mean just like the consequences of your sin, like the fallout from it, but like a genuine godly sorrow over your transgressions. You know, a sorrow that stems not from like the worldly consequences of, of what happened, but from the impact of your sin on God or on others or even on your own soul. There's no denial or no defense, no pleased self-righteousness if you've ever stood at this kind of crossroad and recognized your wrongdoings and you felt the profound grief that it causes. And Jesus says to you in that moment, you're blessed. You've positioned yourself perfectly to receive God's favor. You're exactly where he needs you to be. Okay, now listen here, this God, God isn't interested in shaming you for your past. Okay, but when, you, when you're in a place of mourning, he can work within you in ways that aren't possible otherwise. Okay, when you position yourself in a place of mourning, he can work on you when he can't, if you're just kind of in comfort. Okay, blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who mourn over their own sin and personal uh, brokenness, okay? In other words, you should be grieving your own sin, not growing more comfortable with it, right? The second thing is this, is that mourning over the sin and the brokenness in the world around us. Okay, every single one of us sitting here has felt heartache and loss, okay? We've, we've seen, and we, 
you know, sickness and, 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 and death and, and resulting from the fallen state of this world. Okay, we've in, endured um, the sting of losing someone dear to us, right? Of experiencing those harsh realities of a broken world. We're all too familiar with tears, aren't we? But Jesus assures us that when we shed those tears in the right context, we are blessed. Okay, we live in a world that's perpetually ablaze, right? Like we, I don't know anybody that wakes up in the morning, man, I can't wait to see what kind of chaos is happening in the world today, right? I'm kind of reminded of that, I don't know what it is, it's like a meme, it's got this dog sitting in fire, and he says, it's fine, right? Like that's what it feels like sometimes, okay? But our world has always been a raging fire. Like this isn't new, okay? Leaving us all just really thirsting for even a drop of good news, okay? Brokenness is everywhere. And it's precisely into that brokenness that Jesus stepped, into and, and he wept. Like it says in Luke 13, he was observing Jerusalem and he grieved for its people. He's expressing a yearning to shelter them under his wings as a, as a hen does for her chicks. But he says that they rejected him. And notice something here, that Jesus doesn't say, blessed are those who rage against those who don't share their values. Instead, he says, blessed are those who mourn. So the right response to the world's brokenness isn't rage, it's grief. So we see this very thing in the Psalms. In Psalm 119, it says, my eyes shed streams of tears because people do not keep your law. He doesn't express irritation or disdain towards non-believers. Instead, he mourns their disregard for God's law. And Paul states it this way in Philippians. He says, for many of whom I have told you and now tell you even with tears, Walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. His words reflect not an anger, but a sorrow, a profound sense of grief that people are distant from God and in desperate need of his grace. Now we understand this. We aren't expected to engage emotionally on all of the brokenness in the world, okay? That's not feasible, right? Our, our constant news feeds and social media updates and news alerts and all that kind of stuff, we don't have the emotional bandwidth to to endure all of those things, okay? If we attempt to engage in all of the world's sorrows, it will overwhelm us, okay? We aren't designed to carry that type of load, right? But this is why the body, the church, right, is, is each equipped to engage in different facets of that, in different areas of a broken world. So it demands some discernment, right? We can't immerse ourselves in all the world's pain, but neither should we harden our hearts to the suffering of others. Jesus invites us into a place of mourning asserting that blessed are those who mourn. So when we, when we mourn, we position ourselves to receive God's blessing, all right? Therefore, blessed are those who mourn over sin and brokenness in the world around them. The last one is this. Jesus speaks about mourning over the sin that's done to us, okay? In the Sermon on the Mount, he's addressing a crowd that's familiar with this. They live under the iron fist of Rome, right? They live under um, religious leaders who are misusing the law for their own gain, okay? They're, they're well acquainted um, with sin being done to them, and the brokenness in the world that's being inflicted upon them. And I think many of us could probably identify with such experiences too. Many here that have endured the loss and pain um, due to the actions of others, and we carry that burden of this grief, right? Know that Jesus sees you. He doesn't trivialize your tears. Okay, there's a psalm that, that talks about God collecting your tears in a bottle even. He, he sees them. He remembers them. He treasures them. And in his perfect timing, 
he will respond to them. So for those of us that have experienced pain or loss or abuse, if you mourn that in the right way, bring your tears before God, Jesus assures you that you'll experience God's blessing. So even as we grieve over the sins within us, the sins around us, and the sins done and inflicted upon us, it's possible to find a deep-seated joy and contentment under the blessings and the favor of God. Okay, it's not only possible, but it's promised, right? It says, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Okay, so let's look at what this comfort involves. Jesus promises that, that there's a personal comfort, that God will meet you, God will console you, and his comforting presence will be so real and profound that it engulfs your mourning, right? This is how the Apostle Paul can say, we're sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Okay, it's possible to encounter God and his comforting presence in such a way that your mourning transforms to joy. So let's consider how God comforts us with his forgiveness. If we mourn our own sins, if we bring our tears to him and our sins to him, God comforts us and forgives us. Okay, it's one of the central messages of the Bible. Okay, sinners like you and me can be forgiven and restored to a God who loves us, and this is all possible through Jesus. Right? When his grace reaches us, it also brings to, with it comfort and joy that also comes to us. And we see this all the way back in the Old Testament. We're gonna look at a, a psalm here, Psalm 32. It says this, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silence, in other words, when I hid my sin, when I was not dealing with my sin, when I ignored my sin, when I pretended that my sin wasn't there, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me, like conviction. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. So the psalmist didn't try to hide his sin, right? Said he took it to God, and God covered his sin. He, it brought him immense comfort, right? He experienced the joy of being someone that God has forgiven, someone whom God has not keeping a list of sins that has forgiven them entirely. He's moved uh, from wasting away in a secret sin to delighting in the forgiving love of God. That's the comfort of God. Okay, remember David's story? He had some pretty egregious sins, right? The adultery with Bathsheba, and then he arranged to have her husband Uriah killed in battle, okay? And for a time, he lived in rebellion. And then Nathan, the prophet, shows up, and David repents. And, and we find David in this moment in Psalm 51 in his, repent, in his repentance. Let me read this to you. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all of my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with an unwilling spirit. With a willing spirit, excuse me. 
David was in a state of mourning here. He felt crushed, but when God's forgiveness came to him, he felt the comfort of God's grace rushing in. He felt the joy restored, and, and he rejoiced with comfort, okay? If you've ever felt the relief of forgiven sin, you can probably understand what David is talking about here. But let's not make any mistake about this. Before we can truly delight in what God is offering, okay, we've got to confront the truth of sin that's lurking in our own hearts, We've got to understand the depth of our fall to appreciate the reach of God's love. If his love didn't cost him anything, would it even mean as much? Okay, it's, it's those of us who aren't afraid to kind of bear the true nature of the sin who feel the most profound joy in God. If we can bear the truth of who we are to God, we find the most joy in God. So imagine if you're just playing the part, you just kind of, come to church, you show up on Sundays, you sing the songs, you join the prayers, you nod along with the sermon, you know? You're going through the motions. You're acting out the role of, this, of a sinner, right? If you're, if you're just pretending, then all you're getting is an illusion of the forgiveness, not its sweet reality, okay? In other words, if you're just pretending to be a sinner, then you're just pretending to be forgiven. Okay, you're skimming the surface. You're missing out on the profound joy and the comfort that comes that, when, that Jesus offers. Okay, but to get there, we've got to ditch our masks. We've got to quit justifying ourselves. And, and here's the heart of the matter. We can only do that when we're certain of God's love for us. So let me break that down. Why do we dodge responsibility okay, when we mess up, like say at work or at home? Okay, why do we make excuses? Okay, it's because we're scared of losing face, right? We're, we're scared of, of kind of slipping out of people's good graces or losing kind of their acceptance, right? And that's, that's human nature, okay? That, and it's kind of the same fear, the same doubt that stops us from being utterly honest with God, okay? We're just not entirely convinced that he loves us, that he's that safe harbor we, where we can go and unload kind of our darkest secrets. And we need to understand that it's not our confession, okay, that makes God love us, it's God's love for us that compels our confession. Okay, when we're confident in his love, we can come to him without reservation. Okay, pleading for his forgiveness because of his love, we find not just acceptance, but we also find redemption and joy. Uh, Tim Keller passed away not long ago. He was a pretty big influence in, in, in my kind of spiritual growth in life. And so I was kind of pouring over some of his older sermons and stuff recently, and I came across this one where he's talking about the differences between Peter and Judas's reactions when, as they both betrayed Jesus. Both of them in their own way had denied or abandoned Jesus, yet their responses were profoundly different, right? Judas was racked with guilt, okay? He chose a path of despair. He couldn't live with his actions, so he ended his life, and he kind of saw no possibility of forgiveness or redemption in his perspective. His sin was so great, so monstrous, that it had put him beyond the reach of God's grace. Peter, on the other hand, okay, also felt the weight of his betrayal. Okay, he had denied Jesus three times after claiming that he would die for him. Yet when he realized his mistake, the Bible again says he wept bitterly. But Peter's story doesn't end there, right? Like after Jesus' resurrection, Peter heard from the women that he had, the tomb was empty. And so what did he do? He ran to the empty tomb. And then later, uh, when Peter saw Jesus on the shore while he was out fishing with the guys, um, he, he saw him out there and he, he didn't kind of uh, hesitate, right? He didn't uh, let his shame or his guilt hold him back. He didn't worry about his unworthiness. He jumped out of the boat and he swam to the shore, right? And that's because he trusted him. He trusted in his forgiveness. 
Um, you know, and this, I think this kind of contrasts beautifully the, the, the difference in the, the, of, our, of kind of the correct response that we should have when we recognize our own sins. Rather than allowing guilt and shame to kind of drive us in despair away from God, like Judas, okay, we should respond more like Peter, right? We should run or swim to him, right? Because, not because we're good, but because he's good. You know, we can approach him with confidence and assurance even in the face of our sins, and that's where the comfort of those who mourn lie, okay? It's found in running towards Jesus and receiving his forgiveness. So blessed are those who mourn over their sins, who offer up tears to him, because they'll be comforted by his forgiveness. So the question is kind of, what, what do we do with our guilt? Where do you take it to find relief? And that's pretty simple. The, off, the, uh, the answer, the destination for that is to take it to Jesus. Jesus who secured our forgiveness on the cross. He paid the price of our sins, and for those who are willing to receive him, there's forgiveness, a forgiveness that God extends freely. So the second part of comfort, the way that he comforts us is this. He comforts us with his very presence. Whether you've been burdened by sin, um, or, or you felt the sting and that loss of heartache, the comfort of God is readily available to you. In Isaiah 51, God reassures his people. He says, I I am the one who comforts you. Now let's look at 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3 and 4. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in his afflictions, who comforts us in all our afflictions, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. So the actual comfort that God gives us, we use to comfort others, okay? So we, we, when we're wallowing in that kind of sea of conviction, remember this. Remember that he's the father of mercies. He's the God of all comforts. The Holy Spirit, our comforter, right? He cradles us in the divine presence of God and he draws us closer in our times of need. But be aware of this. God will not mend what you're unwilling to acknowledge, okay? If you're hurting and you're trying to veil that with like a false composure or you're trivializing your pain with kind of spiritual cliches, then you won't experience God's comfort, okay? It's true that, yes, God works together everything for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose, but you cannot shortcut your way to that verse. Honesty is your first step towards healing. You can't simply spiritualize your sin and your pain and expect that to lead you into the, arm of God's, uh, the arms of God's comfort. Okay, you can't deny it or bury it. You have to allow yourself to acknowledge the pain. And then you invite God into that space and let the healing process begin from there. He empathizes with us. God is interested in the real you. Okay, not some sanitized version that you might present to the rest of us. Okay, you with all your aches and all your pains and all your baggage and all your history. Okay, God wants you to bring that all to him. Okay, and he offers comfort and he draws you near in your vulnerability. Because there are revelations about God that only show up, that only emerge in the kind of crucible of pain. Okay, in other words, we can encounter God in our sufferings um, in a way that we can't during times of comfort, okay? There are, there are dimensions of God's heart that, are, that only unlock to those who are mourning and hurting. And God invites us in our pain and our suffering to experience him in this way, okay? And as the father of mercies, as the God of all comfort, he promises if you draw near to me, 
then I'll draw near to you and comfort you with my presence. I'm close to the brokenhearted, so bring your tears to me. God promised this all the way back in Isaiah 61. It's one of my favorite verses. He says this to, offers this to those who mourn, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. So he offers us comfort through his presence. So you go to him, you take your tears to him, your pain to him, your mourning to him, and you'll experience the richness of his comfort. And the last way that he comforts us is this, and this is arguably the, the most powerful. He comforts us through his promises. God has made some pretty amazing guarantees to us all, right? He assures us that he's working everything out for our good. He, he promised to never leave us or never forsake us, but his grandest promise is this, the second coming of Jesus Christ. Okay, a time will come when he will bring total and complete comfort to his people. Matthew 5 alludes to this future event, and, and yes, we can experience the, the comfort now, okay, but through his forgiveness and his, and his presence, but a day is coming, right, when Jesus will return, and in that day, it's going to set everything straight, right? Apostle Paul talks about this future event. When Christ returns, God is going to bring relief to those who suffer. Every injustice will be addressed. Every pain will cease. Every wound will be healed. Every tear, he says, will be wiped away. The world will be made new. And for those who passed away, um, Jesus says, with Jesus as their Savior, so they will, be, um, they will live again. The scriptures point to a, a future day when sorrow and death will be swallowed up and every adversary will be defeated. And David says about the enemy in, in uh, 2 Thessalonians that he will destroy them. He will destroy the enemy with just a breath of his mouth. You may have been breathed on before and felt like you were going to die, but that's not what he's talking about here. Okay, he's talking about um, the authoritative word of, of God. Okay, Jesus overpowering all who resist and reject his righteous reign. Okay, and then no more tears. The comfort's this, weeping may endure the night, but joy comes in the morning, right? This promise is exclusively, though, for those who mourn. For those who acknowledge the things that are not the way they should be and they eagerly await Jesus' return. As I grow older and I witness and experience more pain and brokenness, I find myself in the same place of, of praying, come Jesus, come. So let me close with this. Um, it's kind of a word of, of caution this morning. So here's the promise, okay? If you mourn rightly, if you grieve over your sin and, you, and, you, and, sin, and the, the sin that's pervasive around you and the sin that's been done to you, if you, if you mourn that sin and, and you grieve it in tears that God will comfort you, okay? He'll comfort you with his forgiveness, with his presence, with his love, with his compassion, with his promises. And he'll remind you of this future that awaits um, those who believe that's kind of kindling that spark of hope in your heart. Um, but there's a warning, Okay, to those who do the opposite. So he starts off in, in Luke. Let me see if I have that. Yeah, in Luke uh, chapter six, this is kind of Luke's recount of, of the Sermon on the Mount. Okay, he says in verse 21, blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Okay, that's kind of the same thing that we've just been looking at. Okay, but right after this comes a warning. It says in verse 25, woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. So this verse is a warning to those who are complacent or self-satisfied in kind of the current state, right? Um, who ignore the reality of sin and the brokenness of the, in themselves and in the world, 
okay? Those who are full now can be seen as people who, who feel they have no need for God. Perhaps um, because they're materially wealthy or they have some kind of social clout, you know? I mean, these are people that Jesus warns will be hungry, okay? In other words, it's implying a, a future spiritual emptiness that's coming to them. He also says, woe to you who laugh now. Okay, this is a caution to those who kind of ignore the, or downplay like the seriousness of sin or the consequences, the injustices and the, and the suffering in the world. Okay, their laughter kind of signifies this carelessness, right? This, this um, apathy, this indifference towards um, the pain and the sin in the world. Okay, and Jesus is warning those people um, that they'll mourn and weep, that there will be a time of sorrow and regret in the future. So to be clear, Jesus is not condemning all wealth and fullness and laughter, okay? But he's rather warning against the dangers of self-sufficiency, of complacency, of this lack of, of empathy uh, or concern towards like a suffering world, okay? And he's encouraging rather a deep um, heartfelt recognition of our own sin and our spiritual poverty, okay? And the brokenness in the, wor- in the world that leads us to mourning, to be humble, and to seek God's kingdom above all else, Jesus mourned so that we could experience authentic joy. Not trade that for the pleasures of this world, okay, but for genuine joy. The joy of being forgiven, of being restored to God, of having our lives transformed by the Holy Spirit, of belonging to his people, right? The joy of knowing that a place has been reserved for us who believe in a new heaven and a new earth, and the joy of anticipating a day when Jesus himself will wipe away every single tear. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Let's pray. Father, um, <laughs> it's difficult sometimes to talk about our sin, to talk about the, the, the reality in this world of the thing that, that affects us so deeply and painfully. Um, but what's so beautiful about Scripture is that even when we come and are confronted by the reality of this world, of the sin of this world, the depravity of our hearts, the the sinful nature in ourselves, that there is hope, that there is joy, that there is peace, that there is a comfort that's promised to those who believe and trust in Jesus Christ. That there's a place that we can run to and be comforted. And there will be a day that's coming, Lord, when you return and all of the sin and the brokenness of this world that we feel all the time will be wiped away. Lord, we long for that day. We love you. It's your name we pray. Amen.